Hey lovelies, before we get started, I want to remind you of all the different ways you can get your hands on one of my designs. Impact Fashion is a line of size-inclusive, modest clothing available in sizes 2 through 24. I personally design and pattern every single piece in the collection so that it is fitted to perfection and every single piece runs the same. That means that once you know your size, that is your size in every single piece. Pretty cool, no? You can shop the collection online at impactfashionnyc.com. Shipping is totally free in the U.S. and the return policy is, if I do say so myself, amazing. You have 30 days to make a decision and don't even have to pay return shipping or any sort of annoying restocking fee if you don't absolutely love what you've chosen. Impact Fashion can also be found at the address at American Dream Mall. The address is a curated, modest department store and definitely worth a visit if you are not an online shopping type of person. Also worth a visit if you're just a I like shopping kind of person. It's a very cool location. The American Dream Mall is located right next to the Meadowlands Sports Complex in New Jersey. And to get to the address, you're going to want to park in Lot C, Level 3. Make a left when you walk into the mall and you'll see the address on your right. My section that carries pieces from the Impact Fashion Collection is towards the back of the address. When you walk in, you're going to want to walk straight down the center aisle and make a left at Waterdale. I'm at the end of that row. I'm always happy to chat, whether that's to answer your sizing questions or just to get to know each other better. Find me on Instagram at impact.fashion.myc or on WhatsApp status at 516-953-9391. You can also email me. It's Rivky, R-I-V-K-Y, at impactfashionnyc.com. Enjoy the show. From Impact Fashion, it's Be Impactful, a show about the women making a difference in their own corners of the world. And on today's show, I sit down with an accidental activist to discuss her work. She shares how circumstances in her own life led to her realizing that someone needed to speak up for women and girls in orthodoxy, the health consequences of hypermodesty, and why it's important to deal with internal community issues loudly, even with anti-Semitism on the rise. I followed Shoshana Keith Jaskol's work for quite some time. She is equal parts passionate and pragmatic about the way women and girls are treated in orthodoxy. What strikes me most about this conversation is how committed Shoshana is to a Torah view of Judaism, even as her critics paint her as a radical. To start off, can you tell me what you were like as a little kid? <laughs> I think I wasn't very much different than I am now. Um, I, I do remember... It's funny, you know, when you think about these things as you get older, I do remember sticking up for the kids who were bullied in school, uh, making myself a little bit unpopular by doing so, because um, it just like was very for me, it was very simple. Like, you're being mean. That's not nice. And I'm going to say something. And I don't think I realized that that was not what most people do for many, many years. Um, but let's see. I do remember Rav Cutler Zetzel, who was the head of Beit Midrash Kabbalah. I, by the way, I grew up in Lakewood. Um, his daughter, Mrs. Reich, was my teacher. And I do remember her looking at me and saying, you may be tough, but I'm tougher. And actually, yeah. And it actually <laughs> made me be like, oh, I like this woman. I think I was in fourth grade because I used to ask questions and I you know, didn't just accept what was given to me. Um, so I think if you want to know what I was like, I was just smaller, younger, but the same. 
(laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. Did you, do you think that the fact that you were kind of questioning and not accepting everything that people told you is 100% true? Do you think that that was appreciated where you were or not so much? I think that overall it was very not appreciated. I do remember my father coming in to Mrs. Pritzker was her name. Gosh, it's funny how you remember these things. Um, And just being like, you can't be angry with my daughter for asking questions. And if you are, then you're not a good teacher. Both my parents were educators. So on the one hand, I was expected to listen to teachers. I was expected to be respectful. At the same time, if I was asking questions and I was challenging, you know, not, not disrespectfully, but just on topic, then they expected the teacher to be able to deal with it. So it was a very interesting position for me to be in. I wasn't, I, w- I was both expected to listen, but also defended when when the teachers came down a little bit heavily on me. So um, most teachers did not like my questions. There were some amazing teachers who could deal with it. And I believe showed me that um, if you asked in, a, in the proper way, you might just get some answers. Right. And it's this this notion of like asking in the proper way, which is, it's it's a it's such a fine point to put on things because when it comes to challenging the status quo which is a lot of what you do now and and we'll definitely get there there's i i do think that there's a right and wrong way to do it i do think that there's a a way of like you said asking the question in the right way but also you do kind of get to a point where if you're always playing by the rules those rules are never going to change it's, you know, it, it's this very fine line of, you know, you don't, making problems for problem's sake is not helpful, but also sometimes things have to change. I'm curious how you, well, first of all, I think you should just, we'll skip ahead. Just tell everyone what you do now um, and what Chachmat Nashim is. And then I want to, I want to, you know, delve more into that point. Cause I think it's a, it's an interesting, it's an interesting part of your work. Thank you. Um, Chochmat Nashim is an organization I co-founded officially in 2017, but we've actually been working on the issues that we work on, I would say four years before that, about 2013 or so. Um, And we challenge, as you said, the status quo. And I would say actually that the status quo isn't really the status quo, because unfortunately in Orthodox Judaism, we have been like seriously sliding to the right as we're like listing to the right um, in a way that is tremendously impactful on women and girls. And so having grown up in Lakewood, having the cred, so to speak, of having, you know, I, I was taught by the most yeshivish women. And so I know um, what is and is not Judaism. And so it's actually interesting. The other hat that I wear, or actually my identity is a writer. And one of the things you know about writing is until you know the rules, you can't break them. Right. So meaning when you write something, if you don't know grammar, if you don't know style, if you don't know the way things flow, then breaking it doesn't work. But when you do know and you use the breaking it to affect what you're saying to, you know, use more impact with your words. So it's actually much, much more impactful. And I think it's all touching on what you're saying, which is knowing how to speak, who your audience is, and what message is going to get to them. And that, my friends, are secrets of the trade that I have learned mamash over the past, I don't know what year we're in, so please do the math for me. But over the past, I would say 12 years of activism, I have learned these secrets that I'm willing to tell you. I don't need to be like an infomercial, but like actually things that work when you know what you're doing. So, so talk to me about talk to me about making trouble, because a lot mm-hmm. of people would look at what at what you do and say 
Shoshana just wants to make problems. Shoshana just wants attention. Shoshana just wants to change the way that Frumkite is developing and and all of that. Now, I just want to say, in case, so that it is perfectly clear, um, the two main issues that you work on are the erasure of women, particularly when it comes to print um, and on Agunot. And we'll, we'll tackle these one at a time. When it comes to the erasure of women, I think that this is the biggest avera, the biggest bad thing that Orthodox Jewish Judaism has done in the past, let's say, 50 years. Um, mm. I think that when, I, I think that I'll give a benefit of the doubt and say that maybe this came from like a pure and holy place with from a very short sighted point of view, not realizing the impact that this has not only on businesses run by Orthodox Jewish women like myself, but also on what Orthodox Jewish women and girls grow up thinking that they can be um, and what and seeing what people who look like them and who have the lives like them can do and the effect that that has had, I think, is something that we frankly did not pay attention to when, let's say, Orthodox Judaism print as a whole decided that, like, okay, we're just not going to feature women and girls. Um, but when you take, I would say that at this point, it's prob it's become uh, an accepted policy. It's become in certain circles. If you want to get a newspaper published, you cannot have women and girls in it. Now, I'm happy to say that I live in a neighborhood where there's where that's not true. I don't think that I would ever live in a neighborhood where that was the truth. Um, but I'm curious where making problems fits in for you. Like how, how why do you want to make from people's lives more difficult, Shoshana? Why are you dedicated? Why can't you just let from people live their lives the way they want to live them? Gosh, I'm so glad you asked me the question. Um, <clears throat> I actually have a degree in environmental studies. And when cool. I moved to Israel, I just wanted to clean up the rivers and the, the hills. And I wanted to live on a moshav, raise horses and avocados. Like I literally never would have chosen this ever. Um, I call myself an accidental activist. And the truth is that it kind of, it actually, it much just came to me. Um, so I'll just give you the brief overview about why I make trouble, but you should just know, and your audience should know, I only make trouble for the bad people. <laughs> <laughs> I don't make trouble for good A people. A fine distinction. <laughs> um, listen, I, you know, I, I did grow up in Lakewood, New Jersey. When I lived in Lakewood, New Jersey, everybody said good job to each other. It didn't matter what you had on your head, what you didn't have on your head, what you, if you wore a skirt or pants or whatever. Um, my mom spoke Yiddish to Rav Cutler, Zetzal, on the street like when she was in jeans and Jews were Jews and we respected one another. And that was always my Judaism. So fast forward when I made Aliyah for the third time to Beit Shemesh, that's another story, um, to Beit Shemesh. And I started to see women and girls disappearing in images around my town. And then my daughters came back uh, from school and told me that they were told to sit in the back of the bus because that's where girls belong. At the same time that all of this was happening, um, my husband's aunt was being denied again. And I wound up, she was in Muncie, and, but the case was in Israel. And I wound up going to the debate scene for her, the rabbinic court for her, and trying to help her get a divorce. And so what I was seeing happening all around me was women were disappearing, right? They weren't being seen. I was in the Din and we weren't being heard. Literally, my aunt's pleas for freedom were just not being heard. And I got a phone call after I started to write about this stuff a lot. 
I just started to write the blogs, uh, the times of Israel opened up and I actually had a blog for work at the time. Um, but I wound up writing about what I was seeing and people started to write to me. I see this too. I see women being erased. Women are put in the back of the bus. I was spit on. I was also spit on by the way in Beit Shemesh, uh, by extremists. So a lot of this, I was literally surrounded by the worst, most extreme situations going on in orthodoxy that other people weren't seeing yet. Okay. I was literally in the epicenter of Orthodox Jewish extremism. And I was seeing it from all sides, also from my daughter's perspective. As this was going on, I got a phone call from a Haredi woman in B'nai Brak. And she told me, I need you to help me keep my friends from dying. I said, I'm so sorry. I think you have the wrong number. I, like, I don't do anything medical. I, I didn't know what she was talking about. She said, no, 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 I know what you do. I know who you are. You write about Jewish women and, and modesty. I said, okay. She said, my neighbor was 34 and just died of breast cancer. And she didn't know that she had it until she was nearly dead. Because we don't know the names of our body parts. And we don't know the screenings. And we don't even know the name of the diseases that we're supposed to get screened for. And she went on to tell me how she and her friends were never taught. The Haredi media doesn't talk here in Israel. Haredi media doesn't talk about women's health, domestic violence, any of this stuff. And usually a woman doesn't go, Haredi woman doesn't go to um, the gynecologist or the doctor until, not a regular, you know, if you're sick, you go to the doctor, but a women's doctor, Rofen Ashim, which is a gynecologist here, you don't go until basically you're pregnant. When you're pregnant, you can't test for breast cancer. And so all of this perfect storm of hypermodesty, not talking about women's health, not reading about it in the paper, led to, and I did research after I spoke with her, led to a 30% gap in the screening rates of Haredi women versus the rest of the population. And that even though Haredi women get breast cancer less because they're pregnant and they nurse and they reduce their chances, they die of it 30% more. This was the case in 2017 when I was doing this research, when she called me and I was doing this and research. And your study focused on Israel, right? Yes. Okay, and just to clarify for anyone who doesn't know, in Israel, there I guess that we would, it's generally taken, and I don't like these categories, but the population is generally separated into three main categories. You have um, what are known as chilonim, which are secular people. You have datim, who are, let's call them middle of the road religious people, and then you have charedim, who we would we would think of them as like Hasidic here in here in the U.S. They are the what we would call ultra orthodox. The names don't. The translations don't perfectly match up because Israeli society is different from um, American society, but that's your basic kind of translations here. So you found that among the Haredi population, even though they were getting breast cancer left because less because their risk was reduced by high rates of breastfeeding and pregnancy and all of that, they were dying from it that much more because they just weren't screening for it. They just didn't know to look for it. They didn't screen for it. They didn't know what to look for. So, for example, when the, so. I did research in the sense of I went, I didn't do the scientific research. I went to a woman who actually did a scientific research and I spoke with numerous doctors, nurses and anecdotal patients. Um, one doctor told me that, you know, a, a woman came to her with, she went to the skin doctor and she had a huge, like massive tumor. And she just thought she had like a rash because it's red and, and whatever. And my friend who was the doctor sent her to the ER right away. Six months later, she sees this woman, four months later, I think it was, she sees this woman again. And she said, why didn't you, wh why do you still have this? Like, she's, I sent you to the ER. This is life and death. And she's like, no, my kids are in Shiduchim. I can't do anything about that right now. So she died. Like this woman died because she wouldn't take care of herself. And I know that we're talking about extreme cases, but I, I, I need to make it clear 
The only way you really understand a problem, the depth of the problem, and the potential of a problem is when you look at the extreme aspect of that problem. And we're seeing it actually played out that in some cases, hypermodesty and an overfocus on women's bodies as only sexual objects and not human healthy you know, people um, can lead to and has led to death in for women. I, I want to point out something else. You said something about the um, Israeli population. That's the Jewish population. There are also statistics for Arab women and the Haredi women's screening was even lower than the Arab women's screening who are normally a very traditional uh, um, uh, population as well. And I think that that before, you know, because people could say, well, this, that, and the other, it's important to understand that these things are well-documented and they're not, you know, things that we're coming out and saying just because we want to, like you said, make trouble. Um, again, I never went looking for this. This actually came to me. And I feel like as a firm person, you know, when you look around at your life and you say, you know, why is this happening? Why am I getting this phone call? Why are my daughters being pushed in the back of the bus? Why am I, why did I end up in the most extreme place? I feel like at a certain point you have to say, okay, maybe Hashem is trying to tell me something like, you know, like maybe this is what I'm meant to be doing. And so as I'm writing and as I'm, you know, learning, more and more and i'm and i am learning because i'm researching and i'm looking into it and i'm talking to doctors and talking to rabbis and we went to ravasha weiss shlita and we said to him you know can you write us a sock something about the importance of getting screened and using the words breast cancer right because the person who had called me the woman from nebrak she was an activist and she herself was trying to be active and she went on the uh, radio kolchai i think it was radio kolchai or kolbarama one of them um and she started talking about breast cancer. And he said, if you keep saying immodest words, we're going to kick you off the air. But all she said was breast cancer. And so she was really being silenced from doing, from trying to do advocacy in her own uh, community. So what did she want from me in the end? She asked me to help her raise money for a campaign within the Haredi uh, world. Cause you know, there's no Facebook. Right. I mean, most, especially back then, not officially, most women weren't, weren't really on Facebook. You, you could say quote unquote, but, but really, um, and she wanted to do what's called Pashkavelem, which are like big posters that are just words, you know, like um, like announcements, but they're printed very, very big and they're put all over the, they're like plastered all over the walls in the community, um, announcements. And so I helped her raise the first year, I think we raised about $11,000, um, which doesn't sound like a lot, but when you're just printing black and white words on paper and paying kids to post. It's so funny. I just had the opposite reaction. I was like, wow, those posters that you see all over the wall in Israel cost $11,000. I guess so. You well, got to print a lot of them. how many you put up. Right. <laughs> we, we went all, as, as many as we could. We went up and down the country um, in all the Haredi communities, obviously. And she put, a, she got a phone specifically for a hotline. And she, in the first year, 250 phone calls from men and women asking what's a mammogram. What do I wow. do? Where do I go? We did this for three years. And then the Kupot, the health clinics, started picking up on what we were doing and started targeting Haredi communities with language that they understood and specifically asking them to come in and using Torah phrases like we did. And the screening numbers went up, like wow. documentedly went up. And we know that this campaign saved lives. And I think when people talk about, you know, like, to ask me a question like, why do you make trouble? Um, I'm not the one making trouble. I'm the one trying to fix the problems that right. are coming from people di you know, diverging from what we've always 
Judaism believes in keeping yourself healthy. You're supposed to guard your health. You're supposed to take care of yourself. You're supposed to, we are Tzalem Elohim. We're made in the image of God. And we are meant to take care of ourselves. Not to erase and not to say that our uh, bodies are just sinful and need to be completely erased. We've never, ever been that way. And so this new modern trend of erasing ourselves, Taliban style, is um, that's the problem. They're the troublemakers. How do you think the two are connected? How do you think the two are connected? How do you think that having this like very widespread policy of not having women's faces or bodies in print leads to a situation where a huge segment of the population doesn't know what breast cancer is? What you're doing is equating physicality with sin, right? So if I see you, your body itself, your body parts, certainly your sexual organs, which are your breasts, your vagina, your uterus, your womb, they are only to be discussed in euphemisms. They're only to be discussed when you have to, which means every conversation about health, about sex, about taking care of yourself, about um, abuse, sexual abuse. Why do you think it's so rampant in a community where people, I mean, I don't know if you want to get into this, but it's 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 the silencing of sexual abuse is is silence because we see it as only sinful as opposed to saying we have to take care of ourselves when the body is considered sinful everything about it look they're erasing the name woman the word isha is being now erased because what happens is when you leave the boundaries of jewish law right halakha we have halakha for a reason we have jewish law for a reason we are modest women we dress according to jewish law all of a sudden that's not enough what happens when you leave the boundaries of halakha there's no more boundary so Literally, there's endless possibilities of where to go. And when you look for something licentious, you are going to find it. I promise you. It doesn't matter what she's wearing. If she's got a garbage bag on her head and you see her shoulders, it's going to be sexy if that's what you're looking for. And that, ironically, you know, there's a, a, a line in the Gemara that says, you know, you can't even look at the pinky of a woman with the, with the, you know, you can't gaze upon the pinky of a woman. And people use that by saying, you see, we can't see pinkies of women. Dude, no, you can't gaze. You cannot use your lustful gaze upon anything. That is the point. It is your gaze that is the problem, not her pinky. That's the problem. Clearly, nobody thinks a pinky is a sexy thing. So... Unfortunately, I don't know, Shoshana, I've seen some very attractive pinkies. Very sexy day. pinkies. <laughs> <laughs> well, everybody has, you teach their Everybody own, has their thing. Everybody has their thing. No, but you're right. It's a, when we have these phrases and too often we, we think that we think that we're smarter. You know, we think that we're smarter than the Gemara. And a lot of times we think that we're smarter than Halacha. And we think that we're even maybe even smarter than Hashem in a lot of ways. And we would never articulate it that way because you don't because who I'm not I'm not smarter than God. What do you mean? But when you take the parameters that have been set forth through, like you said, through Halacha, through Jewish law, through Gemara and the way that it's developed through the centuries. And when you have and when you put your own spin on it, even if it's from this um, place of, you know, piety you know even it's from this you know i'm i'm such a big, big tzaddik i'm such a good person i'm going to i'm going to i'm going to go even more like the cat's out of the bag then it just becomes this like you said this devolving type of thing and i think that we've seen this kind of are like 
manifest itself in two main areas, one of which you already brought up, which was this, you know, sexual abuse. And I think that the fact that we saw those posters that went up about childhood sexual abuse after all the um, revelations came out around Chaim Walter, I was shocked. I was absolutely shocked when I saw that happen because what the the story Which posters, for, uh, the ones with the with the hand over the girl's mouth. We did that. Yeah, but also those were everywhere and they weren't yeah. torn down. Those were given out in schools. Those were accepted. D tell me, tell me about that story. Give give the background for anyone who doesn't know, um, and and talk to me about that campaign. Heimwalder was a child therapist, author, beloved author of many, many books. Um, I grew up on his books. I loved his books. You know, I mean, many, many people did. I he he was a um, a beloved character. You know, personality. He was a radio host. Um, he was very trusted. Um, but at the same time, there were a lot of people who knew that the Heimwalder that people saw on the outside was not the person uh, that many people saw on on the on the other side of the desk unfortunately. Um, and it came about that he was a serial molester and rapist of children and young women. It came out in Haaretz, which is a secular newspaper. Um, and many people didn't want to believe it, of course. But then he was tried in a Beitin, in a rabbinic court, and he was found guilty. As they were finding him guilty, he killed himself. Um, he, he killed himself. And that story didn't end there. The actual kind of story almost began there because what happened was the reaction to his death was that kids in the haters and the religious schools were being taught Lushen Hara killed Chaim Walder. And so a number of Haredi women, mostly women, a few men who I, I'm i privileged to know, started saying, this is, this is crazy. Like they're killing the victims by saying, that Lush and Hara killed, right? Like not only was were they was they were they victimized and they were abused, but now they're being accused of murder. Imagine the children who are in the schools who are hearing Lush and Hara killed him and, and thinking to themselves, oh my God, I better not ever tell if something happens to me because I'll wind up killing somebody. And so these activists said, absolutely this is not happening. And they created uh these, as you said, very impactful visually, um, a, a poster with a girl, a hand, a man's hand over her mouth and the bracelet that says Lashon which means uh, slander doesn't speak to me, um, which is always used as a as a you know a teaching thing for the kids not to speak Lashon Hara, but now it's being used as a weapon to silence victims. And so that was on one side. On the other side, they had you know speaking out if you are hurt is not Lashon Hara. A lot of Torah dictates, and they asked me for help because we have the we have an official Amutab, uh, official NGO, and none of the Haredi organizations would put their name to it, which is really part of the problem. And so they came to me and they asked me and I said, a hundred percent. And so we raised the money. They raised the money through our platform. And um, I think in the end of the campaign, which actually printed twice, uh, three different posters, like three different uh, images, three different times, it was over a million flyers that went out all around the Haredi world. And I want to tell you something. I, I saw and I heard the, record, the, the calls. It wasn't just victims that called up the hotline that was put there and said, I've been hurt. There were actually perpetrators who called up and said, I don't know how to stop. I know I'm hurting people and I need help. And what do you do when you get that call? What do you do that with that information? Me. Oh, oh. They, I mean, that they, they, I don't get these calls. I can't handle it. I actually got a few and it, it broke me up. Like I, it, it really, it's not something you have to be trained. You have to know how to handle it and who to turn them to. Um, 
So the people that I work with are not only are they trained, but they also know exactly who to turn who to turn each person to, depending on what's their story. And I was just honestly privileged to be part of this incredible campaign that they did. Um, and I know that it made him, like you said, it was a, it was literally a watershed moment that ended the silence. Now I'm not saying that it still doesn't happen, but it is certainly a hell of a lot harder now to silence abuse and uh, to 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 how do you say to protect perpetrators. I think that there was a massive change, um, which is what, by the way, Chokhmat Nashim focuses on communal change, communal. Acts, activism, communal projects, because you can make any law you want and you can make any dictum you want, but if the community doesn't accept it, if the community doesn't change their behavior, nothing is going to change. And the minute the community says, I don't accept this, when women stand up and say, I don't accept women being sacrificed as Agunot, I don't accept being removed from my Shabbos table, I don't accept my daughter being told she's a sexual object. When women stand up, and men, by the way, we need men to stand up and say, this is not acceptable, it's not going to continue. People need to understand it's in our hands. Right. And when it comes to the Aguna issue, we also recently had this kind of watershed moment with Free Chava. And what I found so interesting about the whole Free Chava movement was that it was basically exclusively online. It was mm. it was for the most part exclusively online. I did not see, granted, I am not a um, frequent consumer of Orthodox media, so take this with a grain of salt, but I did not see it mentioned, you know, in any kind of publication or anything like that. And Why, it was you think the mishpacha who erases women is going to put an exactly. article about Exactly. That was, that was, it, it was, it was kind of, it was so strange because I was, uh, you know, I, I was posting a lot and, all, and everything when it came up and, um, and Agunodor actually mentioned every single time on this podcast, I always list at the end of the episode um, how many people are on get or um, are on Ora's um, recalcitrant party page. Um, and for the thing that was so like it was almost laughable to me was that when the whole thing was starting up and there were people who were like surprised that there were so many women who are really good at marketing themselves online and who are really good at spreading messages online. It was like, dude we didn't have any other option. Like we, we have these run from home businesses because we have a lot of kids and this is, and we need the extra income. And this is, you know, and this is how we, this is, you know, it's very normal for a firm woman to have a business that she runs from her, from her house. And she can't market it anywhere because she can't put her picture anywhere. And if it's something specifically targeting women, then she can't even write about it in any way that is remotely normal in an Orthodox publication. So she turned to social media and we got really, really good at it. And and then when it came to a story that w would not be covered anywhere, anywhere else and that needed to happen exclusively online, yeah, we're better at this than you are. We are just better at this than you are. We have years and years and years of practice. And when it came, I think that it should be mentioned, and I, 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 every time I bring up the Agunajo, I feel the need to mention that Chava herself still does not have her get. Um, when it when it comes to this whole issue of agunot, which is uh, basically a long drawn out divorce process where a man is refusing to grant his wife a divorce, the this issue has been going on for a long time. Like you mentioned, your aunt, you know, 12, mm -hmm. your husband's aunt, you know, what was it, 13, 14 years ago mm -hmm. was being denied a get. Do you think that do you think that all of these issues are are interconnected? Do you think that if as we solve one, we kind of make progress on the other? I can draw you a straight line from the erasure of women to the agunot. 
that is what I have done my entire activist career. And if you go to my blog at the Times of Israel or you listen to our podcast, you can actually listen to the progression of both of these issues in our community. And I realized that a couple of weeks ago, you know, you know like, you, like you're getting older and all of a sudden you realize, wow, I've been doing this a long time, but part of the reason it's so important for us to talk about these things is because documenting them is vital, right? We know that there were pictures of women 15, 20 years ago. This is a modern phenomenon. This is new Judaism, okay? This is not tradition. It's not Masorah at all. And we know that. And we can see how it progressed. Because when I started writing about this, people were like, oh, Shoshana, like you said, why are you making a big deal? It's just a few extremists. Live and let live. I got that all the time. It's never going to happen here. Every single time I spoke, every time I wrote an article, that is what I got. The first at least five years, that's what I got fed. And then all of those people started to see it in their own communities. Because as I said to you, and as I witnessed in Beit Shemesh, when extremism happens and people try to take over with new rules and nobody spits back, nobody pushes back, it gets worse. We saw it progressively in Beit Shemesh. We've, I mean, that's a whole other topic of the extremism, extremism in Beit Shemesh. But we see it in the erasure of women because schools are doing it. Well, you, you honor a couple and only the man is put on a picture. You honor a, a family and there's two guys. You know, like you look at pictures of Tam Shabbos and, and, and Baruch Levine videos of Asia's Chayel and you have hands, hands representing Jewish women. Where have we gotten to? We have gotten to a point where it's absolute insanity. And so when you don't, I started to say this years ago, when women aren't seen, their voices are not heard, and their needs are not met. Whether it's breast cancer, whether it's a gunod in the Beit Din, right now I'm telling you, when you don't see a woman as a full human being, when you can erase her face, of course her freedom doesn't matter. Of course it doesn't. And there are people who will say that's not true. And I know there are listeners listening right now saying, absolutely, there's no such thing. It's not the same thing at all. Yes, it is. And I feel confident in telling you that because I've been studying this for over a decade. I have interviewed literally hundreds of Agunot around the world, not one community, not one um, segment of Judaism, all of them. I remember uh, Faye Sukenik is a wonderful woman. She's a Haredi woman here in Israel and she herself went through a divorce and her family did not talk to her through her first divorce. Um, and she started an, an organization called Ba'asher Tilchi, which comes from Ruth, which Ruth said to Naomi, Ba'asher, where, where you go, I will go. And it helps Haredi women through the divorce process, not legally, just to be there for them. Because they are they are abandoned. When they finally speak up for themselves, they are abandoned because they're stepping out of line. And she said to me, for a, I have this on video if anybody wants to see uh, her interview. She said, Haredi girls are taught you don't speak out, you don't talk about your problems, you are mevater. She said, to get a woman to be able to advocate for herself in the Beit Din and to say, I want out because I'm in pain, because I don't want to be hurt, because I need differently in my life, is a whole process because she's been silenced and made quiet and invisible her whole life. There is no question that not seeing a woman as a full human being. How, when I have suggested 
I have suggested so many times, you know what? You don't want to put women in pictures. Don't put men in pictures. Have no people. If you really feel strongly about not having women, don't have men. Not one person, well, I'm sorry, one place took me up on that offer. One place. And that's because they only did it because they were literally being bullied. Their things were being burned by, by extremists. They didn't want women in the pictures. Men will never be erased because nobody thinks for one second that it's appropriate to erase a man. How have we gotten to the point where we are expected, it is expected of us to accept our erasure as good girls? There is a direct, complete direct line between not being seen and not being heard and not mattering. And anyone who tells you differently is in complete denial. Yeah, it's it's when you put it that way, it seems pretty obvious, you know, when you when you line it up in that way. And the truth is, that's because it does line up in that way. So when it comes to Agunot also, there is it's it's so interesting because the whole Beighton process and this is a topic that we've actually covered pretty extensively mm -hmm. on the podcast Um and and you know we we've talked about this Beitin process and everything. We also we spoke about it specifically with um, Yael Braun, um, who is the divorce specialist on Instagram, and and she is um, as far as I know the only Toanis in America, and she really went through the whole process. I'm going to link that episode in the show notes so that you can kind of get an idea for it. But um, Chachmat Nashim has done a very interesting project called Rate My Beitin. And I'd love for you to explain what it is and how that works and, and what you're, what it accomplishes. Cause it's a very unique perspective on this whole issue. Thanks. Yeah. So rate my baiting is actually the brainchild of four organizations, um, which I'm really, I, I love the fact that my work has brought me to meet so many incredible people. Uh, as I said, all working to make change and, and positive change in the community. Um, and it's, Israel, UK, and the US, four organizations that work with Bateidin, really rabbinic courts, and um, Agunot. And also, by the way, men who, who are being uh, refused to get. Just happen. It does happen. It's important right. to say that. Um, so there's a lot that's been trying to be done to make change. If until there's systemic change and until our rabbinic courts use the halachic tools, the Jewish law that is out there that can help women get out of um, marriages when things go wrong and their men are refusing, until that happens, we rely on the Bateidin, the courts that we have now. How do we make change? So some people, and I do agree with this, especially if you're in America, sign a halachic prenup before you get married. We can talk about that. Maybe even Yael spoke about it, but it should be signed. It will help protect against get refusal. But more than that, where do we find the pressure points that can change the dynamic? You know, we don't want to be we don't want to be protesting outside of people's houses. We don't want to be screaming and shaming men. We don't want to have to put Jewish men's pictures up there. We don't want this to be a problem at all. So how do we go back in the process at an earlier point and make change so that we're not having to shame men, so that women aren't waiting out there for fertile years, waiting for waiting for their freedom? At hundreds of interviews of Aguno and surveys, by the way, we came to understand that if progress if the process within the Beitin would change a bit, we would have fewer Agunot and we would have a far shorter time of women waiting for gets. What does that mean? Many of the women we interviewed spoke about domestic violence, about mental illness, about manipulation, narcissism, and how long it took them to explain to the rabbis and then the judges and then other judges and then other judges what was happening in the house, how it played out, 
what it looked like and to, to understand that when the guy says, oh, yeah, sure, sure, I'll give the get when she X. I'll give the get when she Y. And this drags on for three to five years. A lot of the courts will say, well, that's not really refusal. He's just waiting for something. Instead of acknowledging and realizing this is actually refusal, but in a very manipulative, smart way. And when someone's refusing for three to five years, that's refusal. By the way, so you, you you're saying that there was an issue where the judges or the rabbis did not recognize abusive and manipulative behavior. Yes, because when you're a rabbi or you're a Diana judge, you're trained in halacha. You're right. not trained in you're mental illness. You're not trained in, yes, you're a therapist. And so a lot of this was being presented in, these guys are smart and they're trained, right? So when you say, oh, of course, of course I will, of course I will, and you're not saying, no, I won't. So a lot of people don't consider this refusal. And that's just one um, example of the things that go on. To get to my point, so much of this came through in the interviews and so much emotional pain of not being heard, of not being seen, of of wishing that people would, would believe them when they said this earlier. And then so much of that could have been cut out or having to repeat the story to five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten different people. So Rate My Beit Din does two things. Number one, it allows people who have gone through the Beit Din to review it like a restaurant. Were you respected? Did they respond to you? Were their costs clear? Did they, did they, you know, um, give you clear directions of what's going to happen in the process? Um, did they hear what you were saying? Did they tell you not to come with representation? Um, so that we actually have a list now of 36, I think at this point, different courts around the world um, from highest to lowest. And the five rate star, five star ratings or one star rating. And people in America specifically can actually choose to go to a different court, which is really great because if you I can't see, in other parts of the world. Well, in Israel, you can't. It's regional. Oh, right. Cause the, cause the, like the Jewish court system is integrated with the actual civil court system, right? Correct. Correct. Okay. So in America, you can, in the UK, you can, most places you can, unless there's only like, you know, a smaller community, in which case you only have one option. But even if there's only one option, we've already had responses from courts who aren't so happy with their ratings. And we've spoken with them and said, I hear you. Let's get you, a, let's get your rating better. What, where, where are we falling down in this process? How can we improve how people see and experience your court? First of all, we are not, we are, we are friends with, of the Diana, meaning we want to, we all have the same goal. We want Jewish divorce to have integrity. We want Jewish people to be happily married to the people they're supposed to be married to and not married to the people that it doesn't work out to. And so all we want to do is to improve this process. But the second thing that we're doing, which I'm actually so, so excited about, is master classes for Dianim on domestic violence, abuse, addiction, how these things play out so that they can get the training that they need to understand what's happening in front of them and to know properly how to deal with it. They don't get professional training like this. Right. It doesn't happen. It's, it's it's such an interesting, oh, it's such a, it's such a cool way of looking at it. This reminds me of Rate My Professor, um, which is like, I fully in college made decisions about whose classes I was taking based on how easy it said that they were in Rate My Professor. I am not at all ashamed to admit that. And yeah. when it comes to all of these issues, particularly, you know, because because rabbis, because rabbanim in a community are so respected, a lot of times people will go to them with issues that are frankly outside of the scope of their practice. You should not be going for couples therapy to a rabbi. They are a rabbi. You should ask them your nida questions, not your therapy questions. What are you your answer be... for that? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, well, not even. You go to your answer also for your nida questions. Go to a couples therapist for your no, no. like therapy questions. You know what I mean? And But because... 
you know, I mean, when you're going back to like the shtetl and the heim, then yeah, the rav was your only um, resource. So, you know, you have all these stories about the rav who stroked his beard and said some pasuk and, you know, gave you an insight and everyone was better. And that's just not the way the world works anymore. And I'm guessing it probably wasn't the way that it worked back then either. Yeah. And we end up in this situation where rabbis are expected to do things that are so outside the scope of their practice, acknowledging that and then giving them the proper training in that is very, very cool. Thank you. And what I want to say to your listeners is if anyone here has experienced a Beit Deen for divorce, please rate the Beit Deen on our site. It's positively or negatively, right? Yes, absolutely. We definitely want the positive, of course, because other women, we want women to know where you did have a good experience or maybe a part of experience. But the whole idea is to give women an option and men an option where to go and to improve the system. So if you have been in a situation of divorce and you've gone through the bait dean, please, please do, uh, please go to the site and rate your bait dean. Um, again, if you have any questions about the process, I'm here, but I, the the tool works the more people use it. So please share it, use it, and and help us improve the whole system. And it's ratemybaitdin.org, right? ratemybaitdin.com.com, excuse me. Um, it's ratemybaitdin.com, and baitdin is B-E-I-T-D-I-N. Excellent. Jews as a whole, we have a lot to deal with in the world. <laughs> you think? Designing it, as they say. Exactly. We have a lot going on. And there are there there it's not it's not easy to be a Jew in this world. It's not easy to be an Orthodox Jew in this world, a visibly Jewish person, as they say. An argument can be made that the work that you're doing just makes from people look bad. Just makes from people seem you know you're making us look like a cult you're making us look like um you know you're pointing out our issues and we can't focus on that because we need to be worried about worldwide anti-semitism or we need to worry about you know uh governments trying to control our schools or we need to be worried about things that affect all of us as jews this is this is not something you know we can't be fighting with each other sure so i'll i'll give you my answer to that would be when you want to fight something as a community you put your best soldiers forward you put your best fighters forward whatever whatever analogy you're going to use right you're going to put your best strategists forward how can we as a community fight the things that are threatening us as a community when we cut out half of our community when we cut out those thinkers those strategists those people who see things differently the women experience life differently than men do we experience Judaism differently than men do. Not better or worse, but by fact, we see things differently. We experience things differently. We understand things differently because of our experiences. So when you limit the perspectives who sit around your table, you are actually limiting your opportunity to find solutions because you are limiting the thought and the, the avenues from which you're tackling the issue. So if we actually want to fight those things and harm us as a community we want to make change with anti-semitism we want to make change in the schools we need all of our people around the table and by silencing women and saying no you don't belong here we're actually hamstringing ourselves and making ourselves incapable of fighting the things outside of the community we're weakening ourselves yeah i i hear that i'm glad i asked you that i have one last question why do you sure. still live in Beit Shemesh? <laughs> I can't imagine it's easy for you there. Uh, 
I want to tell you something about the community of HMish. We have some of the most incredible human beings in this community that I've ever been privileged to meet in my life. They are the starters of organizations. They are the saviors of, uh, of, of a generation of youth. They are such Yerei Shemaim and wanting to make change that I am literally surrounded by people who are my my, my, my soldiers in arms, if you will, um, and, and they are my strength to fight what I see around me. Um, it is, I think, a blessing. You know, someone might say to me, do you regret moving to Beit Shemesh? I, I could never say that, regardless of the things that I've seen, regardless of, you know, listen, it's painful. I've been yelled at by little girls screaming at me in Yiddish, calling me a shiksa. You know, like, I spoke Yiddish to my grandparents. And to hear a little girl call me a shiksa in the language of my grandparents that's so holy and special to me is is not only blasphemous, but it's it's physically painful. And I just can't walk away. I don't have it in me. You asked me what I was like as a kid, and I, I don't have it in me to walk away when, you know, it's my Torah, it's my Judaism, it's my community, it's my family, it's my country, it's my kids, it's my future. Like, Walking away and pretending it doesn't exist is simply not an option for me until I get too tired or too old or until I fix everything. <laughs> <laughs> Whichever one comes first. An option. Whatever comes first. Um, but I want to say about what you said about social media and Instagram, like we have more followers amongst us than any Rebbe, than any, uh, you know, leader in the community we the women the firm women of instagram have given been given a power from hashem and i believe our platforms are meant to do good for we can end this the women can come together and say we're not going to be erased we're going to be put around the table we are going to our freedom is going to matter and we're going to make the jewish community as best as it can be and then go and fight those things on the outside that's our job be a miriam an argument can be made that that's happened an argument Sorry? can be made. An argument can be made that that's exactly what happens when we were turned away from these kind of traditional publications. We went and started our own space, which exists primarily on Instagram, but also on other forms of social media. And when what's always hysterical to me is when, like, you're talking about like those music videos about Aisha Kyle that like just show hands. Whenever those get posted on Instagram, the comment section is where it is at. People, yes. let me tell you, like, it's it's it's. I mean, it's a classic it's kind of. Exactly. It's like, know your audience. Um, but the, the women who are there in that space and when they are in that environment will not stand for that. Um, I'll generate, you, you, you won't find a comment from me there just because like, I don't have time, space or energy to argue with people on the internet. That's just not where I put, I put my energy into things like this podcast, which I think are, you know, a, a, a better way of affecting change in the world. But when it, you do have that in a lot of ways. You have this kind of online space. And I think that we may start seeing it. You know, it's it's hard for me to say because I have never lived in a community where this type of erasure was accepted. All of the community papers in Queens um, all feature women. Um, and they're, and like at one point, somebody like wrote an article that was like, I think that somebody asked the Queens usually to not feature women and they they laughed them out of the room. Like they were like, who, what do you think you're doing? Um and but there was oh, yeah, I think the point of the article was that like even here people are like somebody asked and it's like very nice you can move uh, and the 
the I think that what ends up happening is that you end up getting these more entrenched camps. The people who, mm-hmm. you know, social media is usser, right? Social media is forbidden. So because social media is forbidden, anything that happens on there is automatically sinful. It's automatically awesome. bad. Yeah. Exactly. So and so because of that, anything that 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 originates from the phone is is wrong. It can't possibly be convenient. Right. I know, right? It's, yeah, it's it is really convenient. They, I'm telling you, they have got that thing down pat, and just then, completely negates everything. Right, and then and then it leads to well, if I don't, if I, you know, if I don't use social media, if I don't have this thing, then I can, I can ignore it. You know, I can, I can just, you know, entrench myself further and further into whatever my beliefs are, and not really have to engage with the other side. So I think that's that's when we, the women, have to really push back and say we I think there is a reticence among the women of Instagram to go and take their power off of Instagram and to say why aren't we around the table I'm kind of waiting for that to happen I you can't force someone to do that right there's nothing there's no campaign that we can do to, to tell women go on the boards of your school the boards of your school ask for you know there to be a, a a vod that includes both men and women when we're talking about these things if you think about it once you close that phone women don't have a vote women don't have a voice um i know it's different in america and in israel like here we're able to use uh, even though there's no women on the Haredi parties in the government uh we've, we've been able to use civil law secular law um to get women into local politics and local religious councils, which has made a huge impact. Every time women are put into a situation, there is positive change, just because, as I said, because you have more perspectives, more people thinking, more solutions and problem solving that were not being thought of before because it just was coming from a different angle. And I have not found yet, someone can correct me if I'm wrong, at a point where women have been brought in, things have been improved, and then they said, no, women have to leave because it's not working. Meaning even if the men were un, uh, hesitant and or, or more than hesitant, you know, actively against bringing women in, like bringing Toa Note or Yoatsot, we can explain what those things are, but women who are advocating for women um, in different areas of, of Judaism, um, even if men were didn't want it at the beginning, now it is not only accepted, but welcomed. And I think we have to remember that this fight is, it's its not, it's not new and it's not old. But right. I, even in the decades that I've been doing this work, I've seen very positive change. And I want to just say that, like, I've seen positive change. I see positive change when we put women back in the picture. I see positive change when women are, voices are, are put into the, into the larger com- conversation. And I've not seen anyone saying, once that change been made in that field, let's go back to the way it was. And so I think just to give positive uh, um, just to inject some positivity if we do this right as we said in the beginning if we put the message out there the right way if we make it clear this is not about troublemaking but this is about improving the community I really believe that we can course correct and make our community stronger and better inside and out so what is something that somebody listening to this can do within their own community or within their own lives to get us closer to a space where women are seen and heard so I think it really depends on where you are in your community, but just some examples. Is there a VOD at your shul? Can you bring speakers into the shul? Can you, is there a, a, a VOD, sorry, a committee, a community, not a committee, a committee? A board. A, a, a board. board, thank you. Is there a board in your shul, in your, in your local school? Can you write for your local paper an opinion piece? Can you, is there a local paper that doesn't show women? 
that you could tell them about the Jewish Life Photo Bank and say, listen, there is a, it's a project of Chochmat Nashim, we have the Jewish Life Photo Bank, where we're literally putting women, Sneas, lovely pictures of real Jewish women and families in normative settings, in Jewish settings, and they could use our pictures slowly, make change quietly, put in one picture, put in small, and start bringing women back to the picture and realizing that this is actually a really healthy depiction. You know, is there, as I said, is there a speaker you could bring in? Every single person on their level can look for that place where change could be made. And I would say to you, the first step is to find other people who think like you so that you're not alone and strategize about where can I actually have impact? Where can I have impact? Maybe this guy would never do it, but maybe that guy would. Maybe this paper wouldn't do it, but maybe I could start a paper, you know, depending on where you're at in your life. There is a lot you can do. And I'm happy if anyone has any specific questions about their situation. I do this all the time. I speak to people all the time about the issues they're facing. I'm happy to help if I can help strategize. So how would they be reach out to you or to Chachamat Nashim to access that help? I'm on Instagram, Facebook, and I just got my Twitter account back. Congratulations, by the way. I'm so happy. (laughs) Such a saga. Uh, Shoshana Keats Jaskal, Skijask on Twitter, Shoshana Keats Jaskal on Facebook and on Instagram and Chochmat Nashim, you should follow us. We always answer our DMs unless you're totally trolling. And in which case, I'll probably just screenshot you and put you out there. (laughs) But I'm very accessible. Yes. And I'm going to link all of those in the show notes. So uh, if you want to reach out to Shoshana, please do. She's a lovely person to talk to, as you can hear. Um, And the last thing I want to ask you is, what does it mean to you to make an impact? Oh, gosh. For me, making an impact is when I get messages saying, I stayed in orthodoxy because of you. Or you gave me hope that things can be different for my daughter. Um, That is, to me, the most amazing thing because a lot of people have been feeling like there's no place for them anymore, you know, with women being erased and, and, and this scary resistance to hearing our voices can make someone not want to stay. And I, I get a lot of those messages, you know, um, I think making an impact by letting someone know they have a space, that's the beginning because you just grow from there. Um, and obviously seeing the success of the Jewish life photo bank of rate, my bait team, all my, all our projects, um, uh, hearing, helping women get their gets. I mean, all of this stuff, making Judaism better for women and therefore the whole community is, for me, it's what it's all about. And you should continue to be able to do it for many, many years to come. Thank, Thank you for you coming so on today, Shoshana. I really appreciate Such it. Such a pleasure. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to learn more about Shoshana, her links are in the show notes. Chachmat Nashim is having its annual fundraiser now. And if Shoshana's work resonated with you, I highly encourage you to donate. The link is in the show notes. On the last episode, I spoke with Blair Imani Ali about her life as a Muslim activist. Listen to it wherever you're hearing this one. The Be Impactful podcast is a project of Impact Fashion, the clothing line I created because I believe that we are all deserving of the beautiful things life has to offer. See my modest designs that are available in sizes 2 through 24 by going to impactfashionnyc.com. Access all of that by swiping up on the cover art. There are currently 18 people listed by Ora Agunot as a recalcitrant party. View their names, photos, locations, and details of their cases by visiting getora.org slash recalcitrant parties. The episode art was designed by Michelle Moses. Original music composed by Nissan Fetman. This episode was produced and hosted by me, Rifki Itzwitz. Catch me on Instagram and Facebook at impact.fashion.myc. As always, here's to making an impact together.